0: that's what she said that's what she said that's what she said that's what she said well that's what she said
1: welcome to that's what she said conversations with interesting people from the world of sports music comedy and more talking about their lives careers successes and failures my name's
0: ron mcgill And my biggest dilemma is that I'm considered kind of like the animal guy. I'm supposed to be fearless around all kinds of animals, and I love all kinds of animals. But the bottom line is, when it comes to roaches, I cannot stand them. They give me the creeps, they freak me out, and I don't know how to get over this obsessive fear, disdain for roaches.
1: So this dilemma is fascinating to me because I imagine that if someone comes to you, Ron, with a weird fear of snakes or spiders or birds or whatever it is, you would tell them it's irrational and you would explain to them all the ways that that animal, insect, rodent, whatever it is, is an amazing creature. So I'm surprised you haven't been able to turn that psychology around on yourself and tell yourself the many ways that cockroaches are fascinating and interesting and marvelous and then therefore convince yourself not to be afraid or at the very least not to despise them. For instance, how could you possibly hate roaches if you knew, which I'm sure you do, That cockroaches are believed to be older than dinosaurs. That people believe, according to research, that they've likely been around as early as 359 million years ago. That they can eat just about anything. Soap, paper, glue, dead skin cells, feces. Cool. Also, they can hold their breath for up to 40 minutes and they can live for up to a week without their head. So they got that in common with Stugatz. And you like him, right? The commish has spoken. (laughs) Hey everybody, welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Just wanted to give a thanks to all of you who have subscribed, rated, and reviewed the podcast in iTunes and the podcast app. And thank you for the kind words. I'm so happy to hear that so many of you are really enjoying this podcast. I have a blast doing it, and it's so nice that there's new listeners out there that are getting a chance to uh, learn about some of my guests that I find super fascinating and this week is no different. This was so much fun. It honestly kind of reminded me of my conversation with Tim Kirkshin, just because my guest this week is also an absolute delight, who has stories for days and is so interesting. It's Ron McGill, a five-time Emmy Award-winning wildlife expert and photographer. He's the communications director for the Miami-Dade Zoological Park and Gardens, otherwise known as Zoo Miami, and he makes regular TV and radio appearances across local Florida networks and, of course, on the Dan Lebitard Show with Stu Guts. He also started the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment, which has raised $1.6 million to fund projects around the world. We talked about his near-death-by-elephant, the very unique way he met his wife, tales from the set of Miami Vice and all the different animals he wrangled on the TV show, the time he was chained naked to an anchor by sorority girls, and we get a very, very, very Ron McGill take on social media influencers and followers. I absolutely loved hearing his story and talking to him. I know you guys are going to love this interview with Ron McGill. That's what she said. You guys, I am so pumped. I have never been on the Levitard show during the Ron McGill segment, so every single week as I hear all of the amazing questions asked of Ron, I never get to chime in. I never get to ask him about himself and how he became the person he is, so this is going to be a great interview. I'm already super pumped, and I promise the end of the interview will not involve a video where some poor animal gets ripped to shreds and Ron (laughs) excitedly has to narrate it, because as we'll get to later in the interview, uh, I can't handle it i'm not cut out i'm too soft um ron we know so much about you those people who do listen to the levitard show us do gots in terms of your work but i want to get to know you the person so let's talk about um you were born in new york city um what do you remember from that time before moving to florida
0: well, I just remember just being fascinated with animals. Even though I was born in a small apartment, I had trained squirrels. As like a little five-, six-year-old kid, I had trained squirrels to come eat out of my hands, and I had them coming up to our apartment complex, and my mom was kind of fascinated by that. So it was one of those things I've always been fascinated by animals. Uh, New York was, a, was kind of this great environment because it taught you to do things quickly. You had to be fast in New York or, or life would pass you by.
1: And, and with animals being pretty limited, it was most likely only the squirrels and maybe dogs that you could and really... pigeons.
0: Lots of pigeons. We had lots of pigeons. I love the pigeons. because You could easily get the pigeons to eat out of your hand. Now, as time has gone on, you kind of realize that pigeons are really nothing more than feathered rats. But the bottom line, <laughs> it was a type of wildlife that was there in the city that you could train to come eat out of your hands. The squirrels would come eat out of your hands. Uh, it was kind of neat. I mean, I loved it. I loved my trips to the Bronx Zoo. I mean, uh, for me, you know, if it was raining, then we'd go to the Museum of Natural History, where you know, granted, all those animals were dead, but still, it was something that you looked at (laughs) and made this great connection.
1: Pigeons, you are 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 just dragging, but they're really smart. They remember faces. If you kick a pigeon, or if you're mean to a pigeon, and you come back to that same corner, they know it's you, right? I mean, they're very smart.
0: I think a lot of animals are pretty smart. I think if you go and kick any animal, it's going to remember (laughs) when you come back to that same corner. Believe it or not.
1: (laughs) Um. So your dad was a Cuban immigrant, and yes, he he was. Your mom in the states or before coming over?
0: No, he met her in the states, and you know the funny thing is that he didn 't speak a word of english she didn 't speak a word of uh, of Spanish, but they ended up teaching each other the language. My dad did a much better job because my mom spoke perfect English, uh, still speaks perfect English, and Spanish. Uh, but my mom must have done a lousy job because from the day my dad passed away, he still couldn 't speak very good English. It was like, <laughs> "Let me tell you something when I was your age i, you know, I couldn 't make out half the things he would say."
1: So your parents meet in in the states in New York City. Yeah, uh, in New York City. What inspired the move to Florida when you were twelve?
0: My father, again, being born and raised in Cuba, was always kind of like an outdoors guy. He really missed uh, living on a farm, raising avocados and mangoes, these fruits of his homeland. Uh, He loved livestock, cattle and horses and things like that. And, of course, he moved to New York to find a better life, became a carpenter, then became a contractor. And his dream was, listen, I want to go back to those roots. He came down to Florida, Miami, which, of course, is kind of like a melting pot of cultures, but a lot of Cubans for sure. And what what he did was he bought a five-acre parcel of land back then in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. And he built our home. He had my mom draw on paper what she had as a dream home, and he built that home for her. Wow. And then he he planted a grove of avocados and mangoes. He bought my sister and I a horse. And we raised our horses on this grove and we always had fresh mangoes and avocados. And he was able to go back to those roots of just being outdoors and loving being uh, raising fruits and vegetables and citrus fruits. I mean, I grew up on five acres of nothing but outdoor living, just, you know, horses, dogs, uh, all kinds of fresh fruits and vegetables. It was fantastic.
1: And this is in Perrine, Florida?
0: Perrine. 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 Well, actually, it was, it's actually a little west of Perrine. It's actually a place called the Redland, which is kind of the, it's now, it's much more developed, but it's still an agricultural district. It's still where you can go to the, you pick farms, to you pick strawberries, you pick tomatoes and things like that. So a lot of that still is reminiscent of my childhood. And I love my mom. My dad has, you know, since passed away, but my mom at 88 still lives in a 4,000 square foot home on five acres by herself wow. because she refused to leave there after my dad passed away. She always felt that this was the place your father is the place I want to stay until I die. And, uh, you know, God God bless her. She's done great. She's independent. And, you know, she's doing wonderfully out there. And it still is a great memory of my childhood to go out there. But when we moved there, I mean, I used to go out and catch snakes all the time. I would catch, you know, I would get injured wildlife. If I found an owl or something that was injured, I'd bring it home and I'd rehabilitate it and I'd release it back to the wild. That was kind of like the seeds that were planted into me really working with wildlife and realizing that I could help it, save it, and release it back into the wild.
1: Yeah, that must have been an exciting move for you to go from New York to all this open space. Um, But I read on the internet, where everything is true, um, (laughs) that you were very tall, and because of your sort of Spanish English combination background, you didn't fit in right away at your new school.
0: I didn't. uh, You know, I had a hard time because I was so tall. Um, I was six foot four when I was 13 years old. Um, I moved down here when I was 12. I was six foot four and I weighed, I think, a hundred and forty pounds. Wow. So I looked like some, you know, starving child off of some, <laughs> you know, uh, horrible place. And I was made fun of. I was very uncoordinated. What I did was, when I was younger, I just kind of buried myself in the books because I was an awkward kid. I was a very awkward kid. They made fun of me in New York. Because I spoke Spanish, it was my first language, so I purposely forgot it. I mean, I was called everything from Spick to Wet. I mean, I was called so many different names; it was horrific. And then, because of my height, I grew so quickly, I wasn't coordinated. I couldn't grow into my body. They called me Lurch. They called me Frankenstein. I was called McGilla Gorilla. I mean, there was all kinds of names I was given. And I really kind of reverted into just being a book bookworm, being smart, uh, and that was so successful that I ended up skipping a grade. So mm. then I was. A year younger than everybody in my class, which made it even worse, because people assumed that I was the same age because I was so tall, but I was a year younger, and I got bullied a lot. I mean, I really did get bullied a lot. It was a horrible situation for me. But you know, fortunately, when I got to high school, uh, a coach pulled me out of the hallway and says, "You're going to play basketball." I said, "You've never seen me do anything. I could hardly walk more or less play basketball. I was so uncoordinated. And uh, you know, this coach is probably one of the most significant people in my life, other than my parents because he would spend every day with me after school working with me on basketball skills to the point where I made the team. And to make a long story short, by the time I left uh, high school, I was recruited by about 45 different schools for a full basketball scholarship. I was an all-city player in Miami. And what what sports did for me there is – is it gave me a sense of confidence. It gave me, first of all, a sense of being part of a team. Those guys, to this day, are my closest friends. This is 40-plus years later, and we still talk to each other all the time. We still hang out. We still tell the stories of what it was like back then. Uh, It turned me from a nerd to all of a sudden – popular with the, uh, the females, which was quite a, uh, uh, an unknown territory for me because, I, like I said, I was a town geek. It was horrible. But then all of a sudden, you become you know a good athlete and you have, you're on a winning team. We were district champions. We did really well. And uh, all of a sudden, I became like you know a bit of a star in that, that aspect. And all of a sudden, the girls thought you were kind of neat. So that was a, that was a huge <laughs> thing for me. It was a turning point. And that's why, to this day, I always say that coach was one of the most significant mentors in my life in that he didn't just teach me basketball but he taught me about life he taught me about you know competition about being part of a team about accepting failure how to get up after failure Uh, it was you know people make a lot of fun about sports that way they think oh sports are just jocks it's a lot more than that it really is something that it helps build your character uh, it builds friendships uh, and and it builds bridges that you keep for the rest of your life
1: in confidence. I mean I was six feet tall when I was twelve, and so if I hadn't had sports and had this thing that I was good at in part because of it, it would have made me very insecure about being so tall.
0: Really? Um, I didn't know that about yeah, you. Wow. Yeah.
1: So uh That's
0: great. And you probably dated short guys because women like you always ticked me off. I always was oh,
1: so give me a off. break. You guys are the ones. You tall no, men are the ones wrong. My Dad look, married a five five woman and uh, I'm glad uh, I'm here, but come on, dad. Get it together. Look.
0: look. Let me tell you something right now. I, every tall woman I knew went out with a short guy, and I would say, I, I would try. I would say, you know, I, I, but I never had the guts to ask a girl out. That's the, I,
1: that's the key right there. Sometimes those shorties have game, Ron, and that's the thing. They, they, you know, if that's the only right. one think, asking think you out. I you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know,
0: I, I, I was never, I, I'll tell you how bad I was confidence-wise. I've never in my life been able to ask a girl out on a date. Never did. That's in crazy. my life. I well, we're going to get to, to get how to you go- met your
1: wife and how you didn't need to technically oh. ask her on a date. Um, okay. But, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I did date a couple shorties. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> I, I ended, up, ended up with a tall guy. But, uh, you know, I'm equal opportunity. You know, it's about the person, right? Um, okay, so you're more confident now you, uh, you I presume, did not play at University of Florida. You decided I not didn't to play, play anywhere.
0: I, I, well, I walked on. I actually walked on. I was part of their they kind of more, more of the practice team or anything because I never played in an actual game. But I walked on, and the only reason I really was able to walk on was that um, the, the stars were just dumb, and they flunked out, and they <laughs> didn't have anybody in. And, and I had won the intramural league. You know, I had won the one-on-one championship for the school intramural league at the University of Florida, and I won the free throw contest uh, intramural-wise, which is a big intramural program at the University of Florida. So the coach said, hey, would you like to come? And then I got to practice, and I got to be on the team, but I never got to play. That's i mean great, though. that, that People don't understand – the, the different levels of competition. I mean, in high school down here in Miami, I thought I was all that. I said, man, I just got, I'll walk onto the team, and I'm going to be a star, and I'm going to do all this stuff because I wanted to go to the University of Florida, because I wanted to get into veterinary school. My dream was to be a, a veterinarian, you know, the whole thing with the animals, until I took my first chemistry class, and I said, we've got to come up with plan B because I'm not going to make it into vet school. And then what happened was I said, well, I'll walk on it. But, man, I remember the first shot I took in practice with the Gators it's a UF it got blocked into like the upper deck I mean it was like it was, it, was, it was one of the most humiliating experiences of my life I remember going to take an offensive charge and I just closed my eyes stood there in the, you know, the middle of the lane the guy jumped over me I'm six six. he jumped over me and dunked dunked over me so not only do I just close my eyes and have his crotch graze the top of my head I hear and I turn around and the guy has slammed over me so I realized listen this is over this is not gonna happened for you, you Back need to, to come the up a career. Back <laughs> to the animals. There you go.
1: Um, so I heard you left Florida a little bit early because you got offered a job at a zoo. Is that true?
0: Man, you've done your research. You're absolutely <laughs> right. I was in my senior year at the University of Florida. And you, know, you have to understand, I was the first kid in my family to go to college. My father was a Cuban immigrant, had uh, barely gotten out of fourth grade. My mother got a high school education, but that was it because she had to raise her brothers uh, in New York City. So she had kind of a tough life that way, too. So I was the first kid to go to college and of course my parents had these great dreams. Oh my god, you're going to college. And then I leave in my senior year without getting my 4-year degree. I'd gotten the 2-year degree, but I didn't get the 4-year degree. And I told my father, I said, "Listen, I'm I'm leaving because there's an opportunity that's opened up to be a zookeeper." And my father looked at me and just this look, I'll never forget that look. He goes, "You're leaving college to go shovel poop?" And I go, "Pop, <laughs> it, it's more than that. It's it, it's the 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 profession has changed. It's working with animals, it's trying to work with conservation, with wildlife this and that." And you know, Really kudos to my parents because they both said, listen, I don't care if you leave to go be a garbage man as long as you're the best garbage man you can be and you're happy doing it. That's all that counted to them. And, that, and they, they really made me believe that. So that was a big inspiration for me uh, to get started. And I knew in this profession you have to get your foot in the door. It's all about experience. There aren't a lot of these positions that open up. Um, you know, and, and for me, listen, as a kid – uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are going to remember this because I don't really know the age group of your listeners. But when I was a kid, there was only one show on television that was a wildlife show. Today, these kids have Animal Planet, the Discovery mm-hmm. Network, you know, uh, New National Geographic Channel. There was one show, Sunday night, 730, was called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I would watch that show. That was church for me. I would watch that show and I'd watch it religiously. And there was a guy on that show named Jim Fowler who was a guy other than my dad that was my, my hero. That's the guy I wanted to be. You know, people these days, they look at movie stars. They look at stupid things like the Kardashians and crap like that.
1: Instagram uh, influencers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That kind of
0: stupid. You know, everybody today is like, how many followers do you? What the hell is that word follower? I hate that (laughs) word. Why are you following anything? Why aren't you leading something? Stop following. That's just a bad word in and of itself. But anyway, the bottom line is this guy, Jim Fallow, is my hero. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to do everything that he did. Because I saw him, you know, tracking elephants in the Serengeti, swimming with sea lions in the Galapagos Islands, tracking polar bears in the Arctic. i like, Man, that's the dream. That's what I want to do. And people said, you're out of your mind. You're never going to do that. My parents, fortunately, always said, if you believe it, you can do it. You just got to stay focused. Uh, and to make a long story short, I met Jim Fowler about 35 years ago. He's mm-hmm. been one of my greatest mentors over the last 35 years. And I'm going to tell you a really quick story to, to, to kind of put this whole, my circle of life into, into perspective. When I was a young kid, I would go with my father when he was a carpenter and help him on weekends working in downtown in the New York City. And one day I remember driving by, it was, the sun was setting, and we drove by this hotel where all these big spotlights were shooting up in the air like Hollywood, and all the limousines were parked in the front, and the guys with the top hats and long coats were escorting these women in beautiful gowns into this hotel. And I said to my dad, I said, Pop, what, what is that? I mean, what's going on there? And I'll never forget that he said to me, he said, Son, that's the hotel where the important and famous people go. It was the Waldorf Astoria. And I'll never forget that because it's stuck in my mind. For whatever reason, it's stuck in my mind. Fast forward 40 years later, and I received an award that was given to me by Jim Fowler, who was my childhood hero growing up. And he presented me with a a, uh, Conservation Hero Award. And he presented it to me in the Grand Ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. And I'll never forget getting on that stage. My dad had since passed away. But I got on that stage, and if you've never been in the Grand Ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria, it's one of the most majestic ballroom she could ever be in. All these hardwood balconies with all the flags of the world surrounding the whole ballroom hanging over the balconies. You just feel like, oh my God, this is unreal. And I remember walking on that stage as Jim Fowler handed me this award and my eyes just welled up with tears thinking of my dad. 40 something years ago saying, son, that's where the the famous and important Mm. people go. And that's, I mean, my life has been that kind of a dream where I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop where like a a meteor is going to crash into me or something, because it's just been that lucky for me to live that kind of dream.
1: Well, and you know, I talk a lot about this on this podcast about gratitude, and I think people bring that stuff to themselves more and more the more they are thankful for it, grateful for it. You know, don't take it for granted. And it feels like in all your appearances on on Levitard and whenever you're talking about things, your genuine like happiness and joy in the very smallest of animal or the biggest of thing that you got to do are all very similar, right? They all mean a lot to you.
0: they, They mean so much to me because, first of all, I realize that it's mostly luck. That has gotten me here. I mean, I, I've got to be honest with you, Sarah. I, I cannot over exaggerate this. I have this huge chip I carry on my shoulder because I have been blessed by people uh, that have put me on television, people like Dan who've put me on his program. Okay, What am I? I'm an animal guy. I mean, what am I doing on an ESPN <laughs> national radio show on a weekly basis? And, Sarah, everywhere I go, people come up, Love me on libertard Love me on Libertard," And I feel so guilty because, you know, there are people that work so much harder than I do, that know so much more than I do, that just weren't in the right place at the right time, Haven't been able to make great friendships like I have with Dan, being able to be on a podcast with someone like yourself. You know, in our world today, unfortunately, television, radio, they many times give credibility to people who don't really deserve it. I feel like I'm one of those people because I know there are people who just know so much more than I do and work so much harder than I do. And they're just, they don't have the time to get on the air. Or maybe they're just not They're not really good storytellers. They don't know how to tell their story well. But gosh, what they've accomplished is incredible. So I feel terrible when people go, what great job you do at the zoo. And I say, listen, I talk about the people who do the great job at the zoo because really I've never worked a day in my life. I've had things (laughs) so easy, going things. You know, I always tell people when you get paid to do something that people pay to do, it's a scam, and I've been living a scam. I agree, for four... Ron.
1: Trust me. I'm... I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: I've been living, I've been here for 40 years at the zoo now, and I, I just got back from Antarctica. I just did this documentary on Antarctica, uh, uh, you know, living the dream, doing this wonderful documentary. I leave in a couple of weeks to go track jaguars down in Brazil, and I'm thinking, really? And I'm getting paid to do this. Mm-hmm. It's a
1: scam. but <laughs> well, I love it. I love it. Well, I want to talk about how you sort of came into being the voice for others, but let's quickly move through. So where is the Crandon Park Zoo?
0: Cranon Park Zoo is on Key Biscayne. It is a, you know, it's a very hotty toddy island here in, in yeah. Miami where you know, kind of the rich and famous live there. Some of the big tennis players, the race car drivers, they kind of live out on Key Biscayne, a beautiful, beautiful island. And there was a park out there called Cranon Park, which was originally designated by the Matheson family, the Cranon family, and it was a zoo. They made it kind of a zoo as an afterthought. And quite frankly, the grounds are beautiful. The zoo was horrific. It was oh, that, that was your first gig. That was my first gig. I got to work there at the Krannin Park Zoo before this zoo was even built. But the reason I started to work at the Krannin Park Zoo was because I knew this zoo was being built. They had just passed this huge bond issue, this multimillion-dollar bond issue, of which a great portion of it was slated to build this new zoo. So I said, listen, though I wasn't fond of the and Park Zoo, I knew if I started working there, when we moved that zoo over to the new zoo, I would have my foot in the door and I'd be able to start a career that way. Because the Krannin Park Zoo, like I said, was beautiful. I loved it because I started working there as a 20-year-old guy. And um, it was on the beach. So you'd always have these beautiful women in bikinis coming from the beach, going through the <laughs> zoo. Here I am, this 20 year old guy looking at all this beautiful eye candy, walking through the zoo all the time. I said, What a, this is a great job. You know, I'd walk out holding a baby animal or something, and all the girls would come up to you, Oh my God, is that I see it. I said, sure, come on over. You know, it was just it was this great gig that I had as a kid. But again, you're, you're a young guy. Young guys are not very smart. Uh, they're kind of driven by two things, and neither one of them are very beneficial in the long run. So what happens <laughs> is I, I'm out there, and I'm having this great time, but then – the cages in that zoo were horrific. There were your stereotypical barred cages, concrete floors, animals pacing back and forth. It was just hard. When I think about it, I, I get physically nauseous thinking about what some of those animals back in those original days in zoos went through. Um, so, again, it was a start, but we eventually made the move here. I was part of that move, and I would do it all over again because it's worked out wonderfully.
1: Yeah, so you start there, and you at the time, were you aware that it wasn't a great zoo?
0: You know, I was aware in that it bothered me to see animals pacing back and forth. Right, right. I, didn't, I didn't really look at it as not being a great zoo in the sense I thought, well, this is what zoos are, but hopefully we're going to change that. And I think it was my generation that went in there that, that, that was the – the catalyst to that change in zoos across the world, for for that matter. You know, we're, we're not going to any longer just exhibit an animal. You have to exhibit an environment. You have to keep an animal yeah. in a comfortable environment because the bottom line is if we don't save the environments in the wild, there's no reason to save the animals. they have got no place to live. Uh, so uh, the new zoos now and creating those habitats, creating those environments, that was very special. And I think I'm very proud to have been part of that initial movement to do that. And I, and I did... I did put as much as I could into that to make those changes that I'm very proud of.
1: So you worked at a couple other places, um, at the Miami Serpentarium, at the Miami Metro Zoo. um, And and, and I read a story about in 1986 – uh, the Miami Zoo was, I guess you call it Zoo Miami, was, uh, well, call it hosting, now. was hosting a news conference about endangered crocodiles born in captivity. Very rare, very exciting. But the public information officer was droning on about it, very boring. And you just sort of inserted yourself into the presentation to talk about how exciting it was. You got a little bit of a talking to, but at the same time got elevated to be the new media spokesperson. So tell me about that and, and why you felt so compelled to dive in and interject. You
0: know what happens is a lot of organizations, they have what they call PIOs, the public information officer. Many times those PIOs are people that never actually work the job they're talking about. They're just regurgi- regurgitating information that's given to them by people and say, okay, this is what you've got to say. Say this, say this, say this, and they just say it. But they don't really feel a passion for it. And that's what we had back here. Um, you know, that was back zoo miami and miami metro zoo are the same places It's just we changed the name as years went on so back when it was miami metro zoo i was the assistant curator of reptiles at the time and i was in charge of working with the reptiles the snakes the crocodiles and stuff and we just hatched out these incredibly rare crocodiles and they said okay ron we need you to go up there and handle these crocodiles because of course the pio knew nothing about handling the crocodiles he was just regurgitating the information okay so you have the guy up there with the jacket and tie talking about and all the media is there and the cameras are there and he starts talking and he starts saying um you know metro zoo is very proud to announce the hatching of these Crocodiles. These are highly endangered animals, and we are one of the first zoos in the country to breed them. Uh, so if you have any qu- and I'm like, Are you kidding me? Look at these crocodiles. These <laughs> things are so freaking neat. Listen to the sounds they make. And they're going, you know, and all the cameras came to me, and I said, Uh oh. And I realized right then, I, you know, because listen, in a, in a government job especially, you have what's called your job description. You are never to do anything outside of your job description. And in government especially, you never talk to the media. Media, unless you have been pre qualified to talk to the media. So I'm thinking, ah! I said, you know what? Screw it. I, so I went on and I was nervous. I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, maybe they won't use any of that stuff. Well, of course, that night it's just my sound bites that are on the news. Oh. The, PI, the PIO didn't even get on air. Okay, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. So I go to work the next morning. The first thing that the zoo director comes by he goes McGill in my office. And I'm going, oh, God, I'm done. I got to think of what what other job can I do now? Because I'm going to get fired. I knew I was going to get fired because they're very strict about that. So I sit down in the office. He looks at me, goes, McGill, I saw your your ugly mug. He says, I saw your ugly mug all over the news last night. Yes, sir. He goes, "Um, you know, I'm looking at your job description here, and I don't see any part of it that says you should be speaking to the media. Can you give me an explanation? I go, sir, you know, I was just excited about these crocodiles, and I just thought, you know, I, I, was just, I was just trying to convey my excitement about these This is a neat thing we've done, man. This is just not, you know, some lizards hatching out here. And he goes, okay, well, you need to know that you are never to speak out of your job description again. Do you understand? So you look at this as a formal record of counseling that's going to go into your file. And I'm ecstatic at this point, Sarah, because I'm thinking, I'm not getting fired. I'm just getting a record <laughs> of counseling. I'm not getting fired. This is Fantastic. So he looks at the PIO who's in the meeting with the smug face, right, because I'm getting chewed out. I guess I made him look bad. And, um, and he goes, okay, everybody understand? Record of counseling? McGill, you're never to speak out of your job description again. Understood? I go, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm happy. I just want to get out of there. He goes, good, because from now on, that is part of your job description. You're the new spokesperson for the zoo, and I want I, I thought I was, like, a, being punked. I'm going, what? And he looks at the PIO because the PIO right away got really upset, looked at him like, what, the heck, what are you talking about? And he goes, listen, I got calls from three news directors last night that said, that's the guy we want to speak to from now on. We like his passion. We like the way he told the story. That's the guy we want to speak to from now on. And the director, to his credit, he didn't have any ego at all. He goes, I don't care who's doing it as long as he's doing the best he can. My job here is to do what's best for the zoo. The, the, the uh, response I'm getting from these news directors is that they like him. He tells the story well, so he's doing it from now on. Long wow. story short, that PIO left, and that was the beginning of my career doing this as a spokesperson more than 25 years ago.
1: Well, not to the people who get on. Jack Hanna would always be so excitable, right? Exactly. Um, Steve Irwin. Like, that's who you want to listen to, someone who's thrilled by the, the thing they're talking about. You um, want to have that infectious passion. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hey, guys, you know by now that hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go. where are hiring simple, fast, and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes, to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. That's what she said. Let's talk about how you met Dan because that, that has become a big part <laughs> of your job is these regular hits and how in the world did that come about? You know,
0: I got a call. Dan was an incredible columnist for the Miami Herald. Uh, still, every now and then, um, writes these columns for the Miami Herald. And I've always admired his writing. And then he did a, a local radio show here uh, with Stu Gotts. It was a sports show. And all of a sudden, I, because I had done a lot of television. I was already the spokesperson for the zoo, so I was talking about animals and such. And Dan, because he always likes to think out of the box, he says, hey, call that guy that we see on television. Call that guy McGill. This is like what? 10, 15 years ago. (laughs) And he goes, call that guy and go, let's have a thing about, you know, it was Super Bowl here in Miami or something. And he goes, "Um, okay, it was the Hawks. I was some animal against another animal. So they bring up this thing and he goes, okay, we want you to pick the teams now according to animals. You know, we did a thing with uh, uh, March Madness with all the college mascots. If the mascots were playing each other, who would win? And why would they win? So I went off on some tangent. You know, well, if the Hawks are going to play the Eagles, the Eagles are bigger, so they're stronger, they're going to beat the Hawks. And, you know, the, Badgers are, the Badgers are tough, man. Wisconsin, the Badgers, they're pound for pound, that's the baddest animal in the world. I'll tell you, they'll take the Wildcats, and they'll kick the Wildcats. But Anyway, we went off on this thing, and I thought that was it. Well, I got off the air, and I kept on listening to the show afterwards, and Stu got to sing. I don't think I've ever heard any more passion in a guy in my life. <laughs> that guy that guy was, and Dan's going, yeah, I got, we got to get him back. we got to get him back. Well, then, lo and behold, I guess they had a huge response from telephone callers, people calling in, they want to hear again. And to make a long story short, again, I became a weekly segment there yeah. on 790 on the local show. And I said, okay, we had fun with it, you know, and I had all these great, intelligent, male jock questions like, you know, uh, uh, who would win between, like, uh, Mike Tyson and a grizzly bear? You know, that kind of stuff in a fight. Um, so, we, you know, we played on that, and I tried to get some good information. But, I, you know, I figured, listen, I, I figured every week I did that was my last week. I said, that's it. I mean, this thing's kind of run its course. It's done. And then he makes the big announcement that, listen, ESPN's going national. We're leaving the 790 thing. It's his big national show. And I said, okay, well, that was a great ride. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Dan. He goes, no, no, you're going with me. I go, Dan. Dan, I can't go with this national ESPN. Those people in Connecticut are going to blow their corks if you have an animal <laughs> guy on your, on your sports show. And Dan, I got to tell you, I was really scared because Dan said, screw them. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. If they don't have you, I'm not doing it. I, it's I, pretty on show." Dan. It's Dan. Yeah, I mean, he's just, he was, and I was like, Dan, Dan, are you out of your mind? You're, you're having like this huge contract with ESPN. This is like, this is the explosion of your career. I don't care. We're doing it. I said, okay. And I said, the first time I did it, I said, that's over done and then it was like no they got more phone calls nationally and then he was but he was still getting calls from people in connecticut saying listen why is this guy on here um i don't know if this really fits into our model as espn and he kept fighting it and fighting and fighting it and then it just became really popular for whatever reason yeah at this it point really
1: they don't have to explain anything anymore they can talk about literally anything because there's enough listeners that nobody yeah can exactly complain.
0: exactly well <laughs> what really blew dan's cork was just within probably a year after that, I started on the national show. Then they called me to do Sports Center. Yep. I was doing Sports Center. And Dan let him have it. He showed me the email he sent to them, calling them a bunch of two-faced hypocrites. This is how he was talking to his bosses. He's going, you a bunch of two-faced hypocrites. You condemn me for having this guy, and then you put him on Sports Center. You guys have it's a, a lot of golf. It's a copycat industry.
1: You see, you see it work somewhere, and then, ah, all right, we're good with it now. We had you on our March Madness Marathon, so uh, I, I jumped right in, too. It all, it all worked out. <laughs> Um, you've done a lot of TV stuff, though. I have to admit, I do not speak Spanish, despite my last name being Spain. But I have heard <laughs> of the iconic nature of the show, Sabado Gigante, solely oh based God. on the name, I think, and the ads that I would see for it. And you were on it for 25 years before it finally, finally ended?
0: Yes, I was, and I've got to tell you something. When I started that show, I think I knew three words in Spanish because I'd forgotten the language. <laughs> this guy, Don Francisco, who's kind of like the Johnny Carson, uh, David Letterman of the Spanish TV, he's probably the biggest star in Spanish TV, he pulled me off the sidewalk and said, you're going to be my animal guy in the show. And I go, I don't know how to speak Spanish. And I had never heard of the show. I had never heard of the show. I thought it was some podunk stupid show, a little cable network type thing. So I started doing it. And his stick on the show was to make fun of my Spanish all the time. But I did it with animals and this and that. And then I had no idea how big that show was. But it was the number one viewed variety show in the world. It was the longest running variety show in the world as proclaimed by Guinness Book of World Records. Every weekend he had between 10 and 15 million viewers on that show all over the world. And I didn't realize it till I started traveling and people would come up to me and ask for my autograph and take pictures. I had to do a gig in Mexico City on some wildlife conservation thing. I got off the plane in Mexico City. They had assigned security to me in Mexico because I got mobbed. It was like I, I couldn't believe this. It was like a surreal experience. And I learned more from that man on that show. And that show I never watched the show myself. I've got to I, 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 I'm embarrassed to admit I never watched the show myself because it was almost borderline ridiculous. It was like a combination of the gong show, let's make a deal, Oprah, and, you know, to tell the truth. I mean, it was just uh, three hours of just absolute craziness. Um, And yet I did that show, you know, once a month for 25, 27 years, actually. Uh, I was privileged to be on his very last show. And if anyone launched my career in television... It was that man, and he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about learning to be able to laugh at yourself, you know, a lot of my peers got a little crazy. You know, you, you, sometimes you act like a fool on that show and this and that. And he's the one who sat me in his dressing room one day. Again, this is one of the biggest stars in Hispanic television. He said, Ron, the best piece of advice I can give you is always learn to laugh at yourself. Never take yourself too seriously. And understand that you're on a platform here where you can reach millions of people. And you can get a message across. I make a fool of myself every every week, he says. Look at me. I go out there. And he does. He puts on stupid hats, crazy costumes. He makes a total ass of himself. But he's connecting with people and he's making people smile. And he said, that's the important thing. And it was an important lesson. It really was. Because in my field, especially, Sarah, we tend to take ourselves way too seriously. I mean, Everything it's just be- like
1: sports. And Dan is just like that as well. Like, it's interesting that both of the people who have sort of embraced you and allowed you to flourish as yourself have been people who sort of eschew the expectations for the industry where people do take themselves way too seriously. Absolutely. Uh, and it's worked Absolutely. for you.
0: Um, It has. You know, one of one of my favorite lines on Dan's show uh, that Poppy always says is, you don't get the show. (laughs) And it's so typical because you know what? You're missing it. If you can't get by the fun and get by the silliness, you don't get the show.
1: Agreed. Agreed. You know, during the (laughs) 80s, I also read that you worked on Miami Vice. Tell me, you, you got a great story from working with the animals on Miami Vice.
0: Oh, I do. You know, I, I was one of the people who handled Elvis, the alligator. Um, <laughs> Don, Don Johnson was never very comfortable around that alligator. And we used about five different alligators, depending on the uh, the scene. You know, like when we did the scene inside the sailboat, it was a smaller alligator that we had secured in the thing because Don was very nervous with the alligator. But one day we were doing the scene with the alligator on the, on the bow of, the, of, of his sailboat, where he supposedly lived as this narcotics officer, and it got away. The thing got oh. into the ocean. Oh. The freaking alligator got in the ocean. I'm like, oh, my God! So we all, fortunately, alligators are not used to being in salt water, so it couldn't really dive in the water. The buoyancy from the salt water kept it on the top. We eventually caught that thing, but oh my God. That, that was, would have been that a disaster. Was, that was a hectic night, let me tell you. <laughs> but I got to meet a lot of neat people on that show, you know. I mean, I I remember meeting Phil Collins, one of the nicest guys, when he was doing the theme song for the show. He came to the set. You know, I remember meeting Barbara Streisand, couldn't even get close to her. Don was actually dating her at a time. It was unbelievable. I said, Don Johnson and Barbara Streisand. I don't figure this out. But he was smart <laughs> because he was doing like a duet with her or something, and she came to the set one day, and I'm thinking, wow, Barbara Streisand. You just got to meet a lot of neat people. You got to see the magic of how they made these shows and that show at the time was the number one show in the world um so it was a lot of fun you got the rub elbows a lot of fun people just the the, the craft service on that show was like filet (laughs) mignon and swordfish every night it was unbelievable and and cocaine uh you know what there was a lot of that there was a lot of that i gotta be Um, there was a lot of that
1: you told a story on levitard show about keeping penguins in a bathtub for another movie uh what are some of the other (laughs) weird things from movies and television you've had to handle
0: Oh, jeez. Uh, you know, television is, is just working with people that you don't think uh, – and this wasn't television. I had to do the halftime show of uh, the Super Bowl one year, and I had to work with Tony Bennett and Patti LaBelle. But the stick was it was like an Aladdin-Disney halftime, and I had to come out with a huge python. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Patti LaBelle screamed like a little girl. She said she couldn't do the show if there was a python on the, on the set. Wow. And, and she was the nicest lady on the face of the planet, but she was visibly trapped. She started crying. I mean, tears coming out of her eyes. Wow. She had this huge phobia. So we worked with another animal, but I'll, I'll never forget that phobia she had. You know, another person who has that huge phobia is, is Dwayne Wade. And it's not with snakes, but it's with birds. I had to do a couple of promotional things with Dwayne, and I brought out a big like king vulture. Again, he screamed and ran like a little girl. A lot of people don't know this about Dwayne, but he really has a a profound fear of birds. As a matter of fact, you know, when they play the Hawks, sometimes the Atlanta Hawks would fly a Hawk pregame at the Atlanta Arena and Dwayne knew that, and he would stay in the locker room until the hawk flew because he was That's crazy. so phobic about that, that hawk. Yeah, so yeah. it's amazing to me how some of these, you know, huge, powerful, uh, iconic athletes have these profound Bering, fears about things.
1: terrified of horses, and they would bring oh. that horse across the field after every touchdown for the Chiefs. And he really? was afraid of his own mascot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, what's the, what would you say is maybe the craziest celebrity interaction you've had because of the job? um
0: it's, it's got to be Shaquille O'Neal that guy is is such a character he's beyond a character um he would come out and this was during the championship season we, we remain good friends I, we still talk to each other on a, on a fairly regular basis and um, he would come out and I would take him around the zoo and he'd do stupid things he'd like hang out of the tram and he'd jump up and down and I'd say Shaq sit down. I can imagine him like turning his ankle or hurting himself. I go, you know what's going to happen if you hurt yourself? I'm going to be the one that's vilified. This is during the championship season. He goes, oh no, no, it's going to be fine. You'll be fine. But he was afraid of everything. Afraid of every animal on the planet. This is a guy who has his own zip code, okay? And this guy was just petrified. We had a baby giraffe born. I said, Shaq, Shaq, come on. I need you to come out. I want to take this picture with you and the baby giraffe because you're still taller than the giraffe. It's a fantastic shot. They're going to bite me. They're gonna bite. I go, Shaq, it's just born. It doesn't even have any teeth come on, are you sure he's not going to bite me? The thing would walk up to him and he I, I, I go, are you serious? People need to see you like this. You're a freaking dunk monster and you're afraid of a <laughs> newborn baby giraffe. Uh, so he was afraid of a lot of little things too, but he was a really good sport about it. And he has helped me with a lot of conservation promotions. He came down once. The world's smallest primate is something called a mouse lemur and it's an endangered species. And I asked him, I said, Jack, I want to take a picture with you because human beings are primates and he's the largest human being I've ever known in my life. So I said, I want a picture with the largest, Largest primate holding the world's smallest primate. It'll be a great, fun poster. And he was afraid he was going to bite him again, the thing's the size of a hamster. Uh, And I go, come on, Shaq. And he really made a lot of great faces, a lot of great poses. That guy, what I really appreciate about Shaquille O'Neal is that he knew that life was much more than basketball. Uh, He was incredible. You know, I would take him around the zoo. He might see somebody wearing his jersey, and he always kind of like went in but he he said, stop. I go, Shaq, if we stop, you're going to get mobbed. He goes, just stop. He goes, hey, what are you wearing my jersey for? And he yells yell at this guy. And the guy, you know, was like this big guy turned around like he was about to beat his ass. And he sees a check and the guy starts crying. The guy starts crying. Oh, my wow. God, I can't believe it's you. And Shaq gets out and takes pictures and signs a jersey and stuff for him. I just remember how good he was with people here doing that kind of stuff. So uh, that, that, uh, my most memorable interactions have been with him and, and the things that we have done together with him and his kids and stuff like that. He's, he, you know I'll tell you a I, I, real quick story about Shaq. He called me one night, um, to, uh, one day to bring his kids to the zoo. He'd always do that um, when he had his kids with him. And one day it happened to be my daughter's birthday, and it was we were celebrating her party at the you know one of these like uh, gaming places. And I, I get the call, and I, I told my wife, I said, "Listen, Shaq called. I'm going to go to the zoo. He's coming with the kids." And she got so pissed at me. She goes, "Oh, really? You're going to leave your daughter's birthday to go take him and his kids around the zoo?" I go, "Listen, the birthday's over with. We already did the cake and everything." She doesn't care that I'm here. Oh yeah, I bet you he wouldn't leave a game to come help you do something. And I go, "Rita." He's a nice guy. He's been super nice to me. Let me just say. So she goes, fine. You know, when your wife says fine, that's really bad. And when she yeah. finishes it with, with whatever, like fine, whatever, then it's really yeah. bad. Anyway, I go and I tell Shaq, and I say, Shaq, and he goes, well, what were you doing? I go, "It's my daughter's birthday. He goes, oh, man, you should have told me. What he goes, get your daughter on the phone. So I get my daughter on the phone. he goes, Alexis, this is Shaquille O'Neal. Listen, tomorrow night we got a playoff game. I want you to come as my guest, okay Aww. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take your daddy away from, 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 from your birthday party. So I want you to come as my guest and I want you to bring you can bring three people with you. I'm not gonna tell you what three people you should bring, but I strongly suggest you bring your family with you. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, he goes, I'm gonna have tickets waiting for you, I have everything. So we get to the game. He's got his security people waiting for us to get there. They walk us in. They give us all kinds of swag and stuff, sit us right behind the bench. This is a playoff game. He turns around. He winks at Alexis. He had wow. the best game in the entire playoffs that game. After the game, he's being mobbed by media, doing interviews and stuff like that. He walks in the locker room. He points at Alexis. He goes, wait there. So we wait there, and everybody's kind of leaving the arena. So we're just sitting there in the front behind the bench, and all of a sudden this guy comes out in a jacket with a piece and he goes, I'm looking for Alexis McGill. <laughs> Alexis kind of sheepishly raises her hand, he goes, I've been uh, asked to bring you and three others of your choice back to the locker room to meet Mr. Wow. O'Neill. And she go, and, and, and and he goes, You can choose whoever you want to bring <laughs> and Aladdin, we look at Alexis like are you bringing us right and yeah. we bring us back there he brings us back Shaq meets us in the locker room he gives Alexis his jersey his shoes everything wow. the whole outfit you know he signed it for her and he goes I'm really sorry I took your daddy away for your birthday I hope you had a good time I dunked wow. that big dunk for you you know these are just special things that kids don't forget I'll never forget yeah. because my daughter is holding a shoe and it's all sweaty and she looks at me and she goes this is gross daddy I go hold the shoe damn it <laughs> you know, Alexis keep it keep yeah.
1: it <laughs> and sell it you later know. keep it <laughs>
0: so it's <laughs> told me a lot about that guy and the way yeah, sure. he is. And it was a really good interaction.
1: So you mentioned your wife and, and, and your daughter. Um, tell us the story about meeting your wife.
0: <laughs> remember, I told you, I've never been able to ask a girl out on a date because I was always sure they'd all say no. And I'd be devastated and want to just go play in traffic. <laughs> but I remember I got bitten by a crocodile really badly. And I had to go have surgery in the hospital And uh, I'm having surgery. And again, this is going to sound terrible, politically, horribly incorrect. But back then, remember, this is 30-something years ago. I'm a guy in my mid-20s, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have one of those beautiful, sexy nurses in those little cute white dresses taking care of me. This isn't going to be so bad, all right? Um, so I sit there after surgery, I got my arm in a cast all the way up almost to my shoulder and, um, I'm waiting for my nurse to come in and it's a guy and he wasn't a very nice guy. He's mm-hmm. the kind of guy that would wake me up to give me sleeping pills. I'm like, are you serious? And I'm so bummed. I told my dad, I said, dad, you know, everything I thought was going to be good about this because my dad always said there's a good reason for every bad thing that happened. That was this <laughs> big mantra that was given to me my whole life. So I'm waiting and I'm thinking, okay, and I say, okay, now you got to go down to physical therapy. And, uh, they put me in a wheelchair, even though it's my hand that got bitten, but in the hospital hospital. because of risk management insurance. They make you sit in a wheelchair everywhere you got to go. So this nurse wheels me down to physical therapy. I'm in the physical therapy uh, gym there waiting for my therapist to come out. The door opens and she walks in. I got to tell you something, Sarah, when I tell you that all of a sudden I didn't hear anything except for like, (laughs) everything around her was out of focus and just her eyes and her face were laser focused. She looked at me, I looked at her and I thought for a minute I was really scared. I said, my God, I think I've died. I've gone to heaven. I'm looking at a flippin' angel. She walked and she comes walking over to me. I was speechless. She held my hand. She goes, Hi, I'm going to be your physical therapist. And I just went, oh my God. God, thank you, 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 God. And she looked at me, and I, that's when I was working on Miami Vice already. And she you know, saw I had already been doing some television stuff. She goes, you're the guy that works at the zoo, right? And I go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought this was going to be good, right? This is good, right? And she goes, that zoo sucks. Oh. Go, oh, that's exactly what she just like that. That zoo sucks. And I went, oh, wow, I'm really sorry you feel that way. And then I, I said, well, this is the way I have my in without asking actually for a date. I said, listen, if you ever want a, a second chance to Get a second opinion of the zoo. I'll be happy to show you around. All you just need to do is just call me and let me know. She goes, yeah, fine, or whatever. Anyway, I guess there were fireworks on her end, too. Wow. Um, and the day after I got discharged, she called and left a message at the zoo. That, you know, this is Rita Nichols calling, blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, my God, oh, my God, you called. I called her back and said, I'm returning your call. She goes, yeah, you know, I thought I would take you up on that tour of the zoo you wanted to give me. And I go, great, when, when, when did you want to do it? She goes, Today. <laughs> Because she said she was so hesitant in calling because she said, my mother always told me, you never call a guy, you never call a guy, you never call a guy. So I figured I'm just going to call you and get it over with and you'll say no and then I don't have to do it again. (laughs) So I said, okay, nope, yes, okay. And I cleared my calendar. I said, I did it. I cleared it. And I brought her around the zoo. And that night, to give you an idea, putting a little sports uh, tangent onto it, I was the captain of my softball team. And that evening, that I took her on the tour of the zoo that afternoon, was our championship game for the city league in softball. And my roommate was my best friend, who subsequently became my best man at our wedding. Um, is sitting there, so I give her the tour, and we come home. And I said, "Listen, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but if you want to come over to the house, maybe I can order some pizza. I live right across the street." Blah blah blah. And she's saying, oh, "Okay, you know." And and it just was one of those things where just so much chemistry it was unbelievable yeah. to where I said. John goes, okay, it's time to go to the game. I go, hey John, I don't think I'm going to the game. And he looked at me like I was on crack. He goes, <laughs> hey, hey, Ron, no, no, seriously, we got to go, man. You're the first baseman, you're the captain, and it's a championship game. We have played all season for this game. Uh, I'm not going, John. He said, can I talk to you for a second? We went up to the room. He called me <laughs> so many names, and he just said, you are the biggest. You know, I was just whipped, and I was just. He just said, you're you're an embarrassment to the whole team, and I really wow. felt bad, but I didn't go, and. That was the beginning there and it never it's ended. It's just like Goodwill
1: hunting. You had to go oh, see I, about a girl. Yeah. I
0: just I met a girl and it just changed my life and you know, we got married about a year later and um we lost that softball game that night. Those guys never wow. let me forget never about forgiven. It. But uh, like I said, two of them were in my wedding. They were my best man and a groomsman in my wedding and they still to this day are, are some of my best friends.
1: I would argue that the, if you ever want to come see the zoo or if you want to come eat pizza are technically asking a girl out, but I'll get, I'll let you come get by on, on sort of a, a technicality that they, that you could also play those off as just, you know, a kind offer or being friends. So I'm, we'll, I'm willing we'll to allow. accept
0: anything you want because it worked out fine.
1: <laughs> That's right. Um, all right. I'm going to ask you a couple speed round questions as we're running out of time here. So has Dan okay. ever called you about an issue with an animal, whether it's his dog or a squirrel in his garage or a lizard?
0: Absolutely, yeah. He's called me about uh, uh, this 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 dog that uh, wouldn't wouldn't stop eating a certain thing. He was eating something around the house or something, and then about his cat, about his fiance's cat. He goes, oh, I don't know about this cat. He, felt, he, felt, he fell in love with it, but he, he's fine now.
1: That's I would wouldn't expect no less from Dan. Uh, what's yeah. the toughest part of your job?
0: Dealing with the politics of government. Uh, absolutely, the, the, the you know, and then of course a difficult part is sometimes when. An animal has lived its lifespan, and you say goodbye to it, and you're in a place of 40 years. Most animals don't have a lifespan that long. So animals that sometimes you see born, you end up watching pass away, and that can be difficult. But that's, that's part of the circle of life that I accept. I don't accept the stupidity of bureaucracy of government.
1: Right. Uh, what's the best trip you've taken?
0: <sighs> My trip to Botswana in Africa was an unbelievable trip where I just saw everything from lions and wild dogs. I've been to Africa 53 times, but that wow. one trip to Botswana was unbelievable.
1: Is that the best place? Because I've been to uh, Tanzania, and we're going again to Africa next year. I think we're doing South, um, South Africa because my mom wants to do the Cape Town side and Cape the safari Town. side. Absolutely.
0: You'll, you'll so love after it. You'll that, love it. where should I go? Botswana. Okay. Absolutely. Botswana, the Okavango Delta. It's unforgettable.
1: Okay. Uh, what's the best place to go outside of Africa for animal lovers? Um,
0: that's a hard. I'd say the Galapagos Islands.
1: That's next on my list.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic because the animals, there don't have a natural fear of people. You're accepted like one of the animals. You can, animals will walk right up to you. You just feel accepted. It's a beautiful feeling to be in a place where it's, it seems like humans have not had a negative effect.
1: What's the most exciting acquisition uh, for Zoo Miami since you've been there?
0: Um, I think it's when we originally got our Komodo dragons. Uh, they came from Indonesia. That was a huge thing when they arrived. They subsequently had a lot of offspring. Uh, you know, it's the largest, the most powerful lizard on earth, uh, kind of a living dinosaur, and for me that was really exciting.
1: What's the toughest loss at the zoo?
0: For me, it was a gorilla named uh, JJ. Uh, he was a gorilla that I saw as a young, young gorilla, a little. You know, one-year-old, I watch him grow up. I watch him father offspring. Uh, He eventually succumbed to heart disease. I was there when he took his last breath. And for me, Mm. uh, you know, I I cried like a little girl. It really was tough. This is an animal that people look at, you know, they look and they think King Kong when he was really the greatest gentle giant I've ever known.
1: You talk a lot on Dan's show about different animals that you are asked specifically about, but let's say someone was just interested in animals. What three animals would you tell them to dive into a rabbit hole and just find out all the interesting and cool things about them?
0: I would say the harpy eagle is one, the cheetah is two, and the octopus is three. Mm. These are animals that I think you'll be fascinated that – There'll be a lot of misconceptions that you thought you knew about them that you'll find out are not true. And a lot of things that you didn't know that you're going to go,
1: holy cow! (laughs) Octopuses are really smart.
0: Incredibly smart. They have incredible abilities to change colors, to morph into different shapes and different colors, uh, to build things. They use tools. They're unbelievable.
1: And I wouldn't feel right if I didn't ask you to do the cheetah fart since you just mentioned cheetahs. My
0: God, you do listen to that show. Okay. It's one of those things where you know, once you hear it, you need to run because once the cloud hits you, it'll kill you. But it's basically like, that's it.
1: (laughs) Steer clear of cheetahs when they fart is the the best advice you can give us. Uh, And Uh, cheetahs chirp.
0: They do. They don't roar, uh, and they chirp on purpose because that's how they communicate with each other. They don't want to draw attention to things like hyenas and lions and leopards, which will effectively try to find them and kill them.
1: That's crazy. I, my so friend just chirp sent like a video a from them yeah. chirping, and they do. They sound yeah. like birds. Right. Uh, all right, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> The Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> That's right. The Spanish Inquisition. The questions everybody are asked and nobody expects. Number one, your desert island album. You can only have one.
0: Best of bread.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Number two, habit or quality you think has contributed most to your success? Um. Gosh, habit or
0: quality? I guess just my my sociability. I mean, I just I love being around people.
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure?
0: Um, Not getting into veterinary school.
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. It worked out, though, right?
0: It worked out. Like my dad said, there's a good reason for every bad thing that happens.
1: Yeah. Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Never. (laughs) Never, ever.
0: Never been in a fist fight in my life. Sometimes it's no. the
1: big dudes because you know that you can beat people up, and so you don't.
0: I think you know I attribute a lot of that to my height. As you might know, I'm six foot six. I'm 230 pounds, and my height always seemed you know it seemed like the short guys got in a lot of fist fights. But I've <laughs> never been in a fist overcompensating.
1: Fight in my life. Yeah, <laughs> maybe uh, number five. If you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be?
0: <sighs> wow, David Attenborough. Sir David Attenborough. Mm. Why? Because he has just been able to go to places in the world and connect with people in a way that I admire so profoundly, he is just he is the greatest wildlife presenter to ever have lived. I was fortunate to have presented him actually an award last year at, at the uh, rainbow room in 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 New York and um, he is just for me he is everything a hero should be when it comes to wildlife and wildlife presenting
1: so cool uh number six what's the most embarrassed you've ever been
0: um when the DGs at the University of Florida chained me to their anchor on University <laughs> and 13th Street, and I had to take my clothes off to get out of it and run across I campus. I tells me,
1: based on the number of times you've mentioned Pretty Women in this interview, that you, that you very much enjoyed the DGs tying you to an anchor.
0: <sighs> Listen, when you've got to take your clothes off on <laughs> University Avenue at the University of Florida and everybody knows you're chained to the anchor, it's not a good thing. <laughs>
1: Uh, Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, I I have... a knee-jerk reaction. I'd like to have a better filter before I say things. I, I mm. need to I need to be able to count to 10 before I say things. I have a very terrible knee-jerk reaction to things, and often I say things that as soon as they're coming out, I'm going, oh,
1: no, don't say that! And then I say it. <laughs> I have been there a lot. Uh, <laughs> number eight, if you could be commish for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to?
0: Oh, geez, you know, it's hard not to come up with some cliché-ish type thing, but... Uh, um, I think the word is just listen. People need to learn to listen. Instead mm. of just popping off, I don't think enough of us listen. We start saying things without listening first.
1: And that has to do with a million things, right? Don't take a selfie with a jaguar and don't, you know, oh all those God. things. Oh my God,
0: can you believe this? Yeah. Listen, you know what? Again, I think I mentioned already, you know, this whole Kardashianizing of America is I think one of the greatest embarrassments to our culture. Mm. That we we, we we follow people who really do nothing that really is impactfully positive for society i mean millions and millions of followers of what what
1: what are they doing (laughs) yeah and then they inspire you to take selfies while crumpling flowers and injuring animals and falling off of cliffs so you know exactly
0: thank you very much uh
1: number nine what's the most scared you've ever been
0: Um, I was almost killed by a hippo in Africa and by an elephant in in Tanzania in the Ngorogoro Crater. The elephant was probably the scariest because I was in a truck uh, photographing an elephant in full must. It's a big bull. It's at the peak of his testosterone going crazy. And we had turned the vehicle off because he was at a distance, and I was photographing of his behaviors. And then all of a sudden, he started to charge the vehicle. I said, okay, let's go. He's coming. And he goes to start it, and the battery was dead. So he couldn't start it. The elephant came up to the vehicle. I hit the bottom of the floor. The top is wide open. It's a Land Cruiser with a wide open top. I'm photographing off the top. I hit the floor. The elephant hit the vehicle and started rocking it. It was going up on two wheels, shaking it back and forth, trying to tip it over on its side. And then he went over the vehicle. His trunk came over the top of the vehicle. It reached down. It was on my face. It was grabbing my arm. I'm holding on to the seat, just hoping he can't rip me out of the vehicle. And he just this trunk is on my face, and all I feel is this wet trunk, and it's going... (sighs) Oh. My driver is, is 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 chanting prayers in Swahili, thinking we're going to die for sure, because just the week before, an elephant had, had had killed a bunch of people in a Subaru, crushed it like wow. a loaf of bread. And I'm thinking, this is it. It's over. Um, and then all of a sudden, he just walked away. The elephant just walked away and left us mm. alone. But I was 100% sure I was going to die that day.
1: That's crazy. I, was, I don't know why. For just today, I was thinking about like how... Whether elephants are ever like decide to kill something or if they just do it in self, you know, self-defense. I think what
0: happens, what happens, what's dangerous about a bull elephant and must is that hormones are just clouding any kind of reasoning that's going on. Um, It is just really all it's focused on is taking anything out that it thinks will be a threat to it finding females. It wants to show that it is the dominant thing, and for that reason, they're very, very dangerous. It's not that elephants are mean. Elephants, on the contrary, are incredibly intelligent, wonderful, compassionate animals. Um, But an elephant in that physical state uh, is incredibly
1: dangerous. Number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Not necessarily a phrase, but just three words.
0: Three words. Consider it. Um, passionate, um, passionate and dedicated.
1: Those are good ones. Anybody, uh, the bonus is, uh, anybody that you think I should have on this podcast?
0: Shaquille O'Neal you should have on that podcast. (laughs) I should. You should have him on that podcast, But that guy is a piece of work.
1: I'm going to tell him that you requested it
0: absolutely
1: <laughs> thank you ron this was so great i love talking to you
0: sarah's a slice of heaven have a great day <laughs> you too bye-bye that's what she said
1: tiso is the official watch of the nba each one of tiso's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury the Tissot chrono xl is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with swiss technology at an unbeatable price while the Tissot pr100 family of watches Brings together sporty and feminine details for a collection that's bold, romantic, and ideal for the modern woman. Shop Tiso at us.tissoshop.com and at select watch and jewelry stores nationwide.
0: That's what she said.
1: It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. It's Earth Day this week, and with Ron McGill on the show, it feels like a good time to remind people that we only get one of these planet things. Unless we figure out how to live on Mars. And based on the Mars rover pictures, that place seems a whole lot less awesome than the planet we've already got. So I'm not going to lecture you on the incredible tragedy that is endangered and extinct animals. I hope you're all smart enough to understand how gross it would be for humans to cause an entire species to disappear forever. I'm also not going to tell you to adopt your dogs instead of buying one. As I assume you're also all smart enough to understand how dumb it is to pay hundreds of dollars for your purebred dog when there are hundreds of amazing dogs being put down every day because humans are too stupid to spay and neuter to care for their pets or be responsible for animals who have literally evolved into being the perfect companions. I think you guys know all this stuff, right? Recycle, don't waste paper, don't waste water, don't waste electricity, you know, all that stuff. What I'm not sure most people seem to get is the simple concept of keeping the earth right around you clean. Yes, the simple concept of not littering. Who the hell do you think is going to clean up the cigarette you just dropped out of your window? Who's finding a garbage can for the empty soda you just tossed on the sidewalk? Whose job is it to gather up those scattering food wrappers, chip bags or paper plates or napkins that you just didn't feel like walking five steps to the trash can to throw out? It's laziness combined with apathy, combined with selfishness, combined with being a jerk. And one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Put it in your pocket, put it in your purse, put it in your hand until you find somewhere to dispose of it. Don't just drop it and keep walking and think I'm not going to chase you down, tell you you dropped this trash and explain to you that there's a trash can one block ahead because I've done it before and I'll do it again. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Throw out your goddamn trash, you assholes. There, I fixed it. Hey, everybody. Check out sports with Katie Nolan. In her latest episode, she has takes on Ovi's knockout, Joelle Embiid's wild postseason, Russell Wilson's new contract, and Ronda Rousey's impregnation vacation. Download and subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Well, that's what she said.
1: If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
0: That's what she said.